Good morning and welcome to the Bridges class. Um, good to be with you again. I was in Amarillo last Sunday preaching their Reformation Day services, and so I bring you greetings from your sister congregation there. Um, Howard Griffin, who's married to Sarah Browning, who grew up in this church. So, uh, yeah, and Howard and I, Howard was one of my associates at Highland Park, and uh, he and I are good, good buddies. And their other associate pastor, Murray Gossett, grew up at Highland Park Press. He and I have been friends for 40 years. So Murray says, that's real Texas up there. So, uh, But every time, I, I love Amarillo. The people there are great. But every time I'm there, I always think, why did somebody say, let's stop here? <laughs> There's no bar, bodies of water. Uh, so I don't know. Because they've, they've been going since from Houston. you got to stop sometime. But I mean, in the covered wagons, why did they say, hey, this looks... It, uh, it's, the, uh, it's the National Bureau of Standards definition of flat is Amarillo. So, but no, it's, I love going there. Good, good folks. Let's open in a word of prayer, and then we're going to talk about uh, being a disciple in connection with uh, really getting into the Word of God, how that's indispensable. And that's the 13th chapter of Chris's book. His original book only had 12. This is his new chapter, and he'll be here the next two weeks, I think he's going to do a thing on prayer and on service as disciples. So let, let's pray. Lord God, we bow before your majesty this morning. Uh, help us not to take life for granted. Even every breath, every heartbeat we have is a gift from you. Um, and I pray that uh, what I say this morning will build everybody up in Christ here this morning. And uh, that we all would... Uh, answer your call uh, to be robust, uh, humbly bold disciples as we are called to serve you in this broken world around us. We pray for our nation uh, that you would have mercy upon us and draw us back to yourself. We pray for your church with a capital C uh, that you would continue to reform her and refine her according to your word. We pray for our congregation here at First Pres. Thank you for allowing us to exist for 177 years here in Center City, San Antonio. And we pray that you would continue to, that your Holy Spirit would sweep through the hallways here, the classrooms, the sanctuary, and that we would always faithfully follow you no matter what you call us to do. I pray for those preaching today, Bob and Mitchell, please pour through them the gift of preaching and we pray that lives would be transformed in every classroom, every sanctuary this morning. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone asked about my wife, Ann. She's got her cast off. She fractured her wrist, and they put a plate in there. She starts rehab tomorrow. Uh, she's still in a lot of pain. She's already trying to work her hand. And uh, I've got two hip replacements, a knee replacement, eight orthopedic surgeries, and 11 broken bones in my life. And it's hard for me to be empathetic with, you know, a little fractured wrist. So I say, honey, you just got to embrace the pain and say pain is your friend. And uh, every time you feel pain, you're getting better. And she's having a hard time believing that. But it's true. It's true. You just have to push through it. So she's doing okay. Keep her in your prayers that she'll 
get full recovery of her wrist. Pam Kasher, Paul's wife, she fractured her wrist, and she said, they told me if I don't really get this thing in shape, you know, I could get a... So she said, people in Lytle thought I was the friendliest person in town because I'd walk down the street going like this all the time, just moving my room. And she said it worked. She said I had a full function. So I told Ann that just keep doing this all the time. Okay. Um, before we get into Chris's 13th chapter of his book, um, I thought I'd, you know, I think in sports metaphors or analogies, whatever you want to call it, and I tried to think of, you know, we're trying to get our minds and hearts around this whole thing. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? And since the Rangers <clears throat> oh, are now world champions, by the way, their third baseman, Josh Young, graduate of MacArthur High School, and Texas Tech, guns up, Chuck. And the kid's only 25. I can't believe it, man, World Series ring. And Evan Carter's 21, unbelievable. So I try to think of, I'm, I think in baseball <laughs> metaphors all the time, and uh, here's what I came up with in a baseball analogy for being a disciple and being a disciple maker. Let's say I give you 10 books to read about baseball. Let's say you're really interested in the sport you want to know all about. I give you 10 books to read, including the official Major League Baseball rule book, and then you, I give you the videos of the entire World Series, and you watch that and you fall head over heels in love with baseball. Um, so what? Are you a player? You say, I, I love baseball and I wanna play, so I'm just gonna go down on the field sometime and play. I said, I'd say, you, you can't do that. Um, you need to be coached. You need to learn how to field ground balls, fly balls, you need to learn how to hit. You need to spend time in the batting cage if you're gonna be a baseball player. You can learn all about baseball and know a lot more than most players do in terms of statistics and trivia and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you need to be coached. It's no different in the Christian faith. A lot of people think, well, I accepted Christ. Okay, I believe the Bible is the word of God. Okay, I believe the, the Apostles' Creed. Westminster Confession. Okay. But have you been coached? Well, no. Let me give you an example. I saw an interview with a famous Christian businessman this week, and I'm not going to name him, but you know the name. And the interviewer said, so we understand that you are a Christian. He said, yes, I am. And the interviewer, I don't think he was trying to get him, uh, I asked in a very polite way. He said, well, it's been reported that you said that I don't need to ask God for forgiveness. And I was waiting for this businessman to say, where did you hear that? Are you crazy? The businessman said, I don't. And the interviewer kind of, and he said, me and God, we're, we're a great team together. And I get up every morning and my intent is to do good to do good to people. I've never tried to mess anybody around. I'm a good person. I don't know the man personally, but I'd say probably has not been discipled. Uh, if you think that you don't need to ask God for forgiveness, I'm always reminded of Reinhold Niebuhr's famous saying, he said, uh, we sin even in our best deeds. 
That's, that's Niebuhr's take on total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean you're totally bad. It means that the totality of life is tainted in some way by our finite fallen human sinfulness. So even in our best deeds, we still sin. And uh, that man needs to be discipled. You and I need to be discipled on into the rest of our life. I'm going to argue that even into eternity, because we're always going to be learning. And remember, disciple means learner. Learning something about, new about Jesus, he's inexhaustible. We're going to learn something new about him throughout eternity. And so we need to spend time in the batting cage. Maybe you hit 340 last year. You still need to be in the batting cage. Maybe you won the gold glove for fielding. You still need to practice and somebody to show you a better way. They're always looking to improve. So you need a coach. And then new Christians need coaches. And if you're a committed Christian and a long-time Christian, we need to be more concerted, more intentional here at First Press about getting you guys together with people who make professions of faith. Because they're like, okay, I'm on the team. I want to play. I need a coach. That's what being a disciple and a disciple maker is all about. So um, let me just say one more thing before we get into this. Um, last week, my successor at Highland Park Prez, Brian Dunnigan, died in his sleep. A week ago Wednesday. Of natural cause, he was 44 years old. He leaves a wife and three little kids. His memorial service was this past Wednesday. And that's hit me a lot harder than I thought it would. I mean, if I, somebody said, what if your successor died young? I, I, I don't know. It's hit me pretty hard. My daughter's on staff there, so I kind of get the inside scoop. But pray for Highland Park Prayer. They don't, they, there's no map or playbook for how to go through this when your senior pastor dies. Highland Park's had seven pastors in its history. I'm the only living one left. There ought to be three alive. Clayton Bell, my predecessor and Brian and myself, they all have died. And uh, I keep getting emails saying, did we kill our senior pastor? Uh, there's a few people there who tried to kill me, um, but uh, it's tough. Those are big churches. Everybody's a chief, no Indians. And it's tough. And I don't know. Brian was a third team All-American lacrosse player at Stanford, captain of Stanford lacrosse. So he's in good shape. Just may have been a genetic thing. I don't know. They haven't released autopsy results. But just pray for his family. Allie is his wife and their three kids, Wheeler, CJ, and Annie. And for Highland Park Prayers, I think they're going to try to get an interim and then another senior pastor. Um, but it's tough. It's tough on them. Okay. Um, a disciple, Chris titles this chapter, Disciple Spends Time in the Word. And this is a quote from his book. A committed disciple is committed to spending time in Scripture to have the knowledge base required to grow in likeness to and fellowship with the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Christians should seek to know the truth because the truth of God sets us free to be the people God wants us to be. Time in the Word of God alone is not enough to be a transformed disciple of Christ, but it's essential to growing in Christ. Um, you know, the, we've talked about this before in this class. 
the word is one of what re, our Reformed theology calls uh, one of the three ordinary means of grace. There's the word, prayer, and the sacrament slash worship, Lord's Supper worship. And we'll be, do, we'll be doing all those in the sanctuary this morning, practicing the three ordinary means of grace. Um, let's listen to what the Bible says about itself. A lot of people think, well, I don't, I don't know if the Bible's the Word of God. Listen to what Paul writes to Timothy. And those of you that know me, I, I see some new faces in here. I believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22, um, that our job is to attend to, not contend with, Scripture. That's one of the reasons we left our former denomination. They were contending with Scripture all the time instead of attending to it. And listen to what Paul says. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out is, another translation is inspired. Breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If the Bible's not that, then um, we're, we were, we're free to just do anything we want. Um, our denomination, we believe what I just said about Scripture, and that's the supreme authority for what we believe and how we're to think and how we're to live our lives. And there's something that happens, Holy Spirit-wise, when you and I take the Bible seriously, not in a mechanistic way, uh, but we take it seriously and we make a practice of attending to Scripture in our lives. I believe the Holy Spirit will honor that, and it hones us, hones us, hones us, hones us. Um, well, Chris goes on to say there's, he says there's three essential discipleship activities, prayer, study of the word, and then service. And I think next week he's going to deal with prayer, and then the week after that, service. So I'm really doing the study part here of getting into uh, the word. Prayer, just in case you're not here for the times we've already dealt with prayer. Uh, prayer is simply conversation with God. And there's nothing fancy about it. A lot of people think I have to come up with kinds of highfalutin words. And, uh, no, you, you need to learn to talk to God like you talk to another person. Uh, God is person with a capital P. We are called into a personal relationship with God. That's what it means, part of the imago dei, to be made in God's image. He is person, personality, we are, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they interact, they converse with each other. I don't understand the Trinity completely, but I believe it. When I was a, a young life leader, I was in seminary in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, the guy that led music for our young life club, his name was Leo, I can't remember his last name, and he was Jewish. And I said, Leo, how did you become a Christian? He said, well, I was a sailor on board a ship, and we'd go out to sea, and there's all these guys, Christian guys on the ship, always trying to witness to me. But I was, a, I was a confirmed Jew, and, you know, God is one. And I didn't get this Trinity thing, and, and I'd say, you have to believe in the Trinity? Yes. Then I couldn't do that. 
And I said, well, okay, you, you believe it now? He said, I do. And I said, how did that happen? He said, one night I was asleep and I had a dream. And Jesus appeared to me and explained the Trinity. And I woke up and I was okay and I became a Christian. I said, great, tell me what he told you. He said, I don't remember. <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, help me with the Trinity, Leah. Uh, he said, but I knew it was true and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a believer. So, uh, and uh, service, that's one of the essential components of being a disciple because Jesus models that for us. He comes not, hey, I'm here, wait on me. No, he comes as the suffering servant, as the servant of servants, washes the disciples' feet. That's giving us uh, the posture that you and I are to approach every other person with. You know, um, I'm premaritaling a couple up in Dallas by Zoom, and with premarital counseling, I always go through Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, the famous submit text that everybody gets all hepped up about because they don't understand what it really says. And if you look in your Bibles at Ephesians 5, they, they break off of after 21 and they put 22 husbands and wives. It should go up to 21. Why? Well, if you look at verse 21 in the Greek, there's no verb. It just says, wives to your husbands. That's, all, that's the literal Greek. So it grammatical rule in Greek is if there's no verb in the sentence, you take the one in the previous sentence. Previous sentence says uh, basically that every Christian is to submit to every other Christian. And so this is not about just husbands and wives. This is the way a Christian's uh, posture is to be in life. Now, here's the real kicker. And this should change the way you look at that text from here on out. The Greek word for submit is hupotassos. It literally means to come underneath and lift up. So Paul is saying, if you're a Christian and you encounter another Christian, your posture toward that person should be not, hey, how can this guy benefit my life? Or, oh, he's a businessman. Maybe he can help me invest money or, you know, that kind of stuff. Instead, it should be, how can I come underneath and lift this person up to become all of the man or woman or boy or girl that God wants them to be. And then I think what Paul does in Ephesians, he says, let me show you an illustration from real life. And he takes marriage and he says, wives, come underneath and lift up your husband. And then the real clincher in that text, the onus of hupotasis is not on the wife, it's on the husband. It says, and husband, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how did he do that? He was willing to go to the cross, take all the sin of the world upon himself, suffer excruciating cosmic pain, go to hell literally and back. Um, you can't get much more hupotasos than that. So the onus really is the husband is to be the servant of servants in every marriage, not, hey, I'm the boss and you submit to me. See what it says? It's not what it's saying. By the way, I always say to couples, don't ever wonder about who's the boss in your marriage. Uh, the world sees marriage as a contract between, it used to be one man and one woman. It still is, folks. Um, Christian marriage, that isn't what it is. It's a covenant 
between three parties, husband, wife, and Christ. And who's the boss? Not the husband, not the wife. Christ is the boss of that relationship. And uh, human marriage really is a kind of a, a foretaste of the fact that Christ is coming back for his bride, the church. And, uh, and he will come back as a servant to his bride. And we're to be men, we're to be servants to our, our wives. Um, that's when marriages really work best. Um, about 12 years ago, I was in Portland, Oregon, and I met a, a guy came up to me. I, I may have told this story in here before, so forgive me, but it makes the point. Uh, somebody said, hey, Ron, you want we're in Portland, Oregon. There's this church called Skate Church. They minister to skateboarders. You want to go? Had nothing else to do. I said, sure. And we're driving along. They said, we're going to pick up a video crew because they're going to come and video these skateboarders. And um, what's his name? Tony Hawk, yeah. uh, committed Christian. He's like the world's most famous skateboarder. He's going to be there. And he's going to be, uh, we're going to have a little service afterwards. He's going to speak and give his testimony. That must be interesting. So we stopped this place and this video crew is putting together their stuff. And this was under the auspices of the Luis Palau Evangelistic Association. Um, Luis is a great guy. He's dead now. But, and they were going to film these videos, and they use them in his crusades. He really tries to reach out to the skateboarders. And so I'm walking around, waiting while they're loading. And I see a guy who looks like Stephen Baldwin. I went up to him and said, you know, you look like Stephen Baldwin. He said, I hear that all the time. And, and then I walked on, and somebody came up to me and said, do you know who you were talking to over there? I said, no. I said, that was Stephen Baldwin. Like Alec Baldwin's brother? So I went back over to him, and I said, hey, man, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I said, how did you become a Christian? Because he said, well, I was into cocaine and women and the whole nine yards, and I married a Brazilian girl, and she was into that too. And she wanted a maid. And she went to Brazil to get, I said, you can get one. Went to Brazil to get a maid. So we had this Brazilian maid. She was really our slave. And she couldn't speak but broken English. And I didn't like her. And I used to cuss her out in English, thinking she didn't know what I was saying. And all of a sudden, Stephen Baldwin's wife is led to Christ by this maid. Well, he said, that absolutely wrecked my life. Now I have this born-again, you know, Jesus freak that I'm married to. That made me hate the maid even more. So I went overtime trying to just chop her at the knees, and, and, and I couldn't get her angry. She wouldn't get angry at me, and I kept piling it on, piling it on. And one day I just screamed at her, cussing her out, and in her broken English, she said, Mr. Baldwin, you need Jesus. And he said, it was the Holy Spirit, just boom. And I knew she was right. And you can read his autobiography called The Unusual Suspect. His most famous film is The Usual Suspect. The Unusual He'll tell that story in there. Here's this maid. She's a servant. And that's her posture. And she wins Stephen Baldwin and his wife to Christ. 
I said, what's going to happen to Alex? And he said, I'm working on him. <laughs> so anyway, service is our, our posture. So back to Scripture here. Studying Scripture and faith, the two are essential to build each other up. Disciples commit to spending time in the Scriptures and related study. Well, that sounds like what a rev should be saying up here. How much time should we spend in the Word? Well, I, there's nothing in the Bible that says you need to spend 10 minutes a day at least, or an hour. Um, here's my challenge to you. I really don't, the way the, we're living in this culture of death, darkness, tyranny, and stupidity. I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime. If you think you can go out there and, and hold your own without an anchor, because it's a storm out there, you're crazy. You're e you and I are easily seduced. If we could you know, get in a time machine and go back to 1990 and then see into the future what you and I are seeing now on television, and we would freak out in 1990. You'd say, we'd be going crazy. That can't happen. You and I today, we just see it and we go, huh. Because we've been so desensitized. Um, back to what Paul says, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Righteousness simply means to be in right relationship with God. And the world is full of unrighteousness and you and I get our, our train derailed pretty easily if we're not anchored. When I was in seminary, I read a thing by Martin Luther. He was lectured to his preaching students. He said, if you're going to be a good preacher, you need to read through the Bible every year. I said, I want to be a good preacher. I'm going to do that. I've done that. I think Luther should have said, if you're going to be a good Christian, you need to read completely through the Bible every year. I don't say that to brag. I just, I can't go out in this world if I'm not doing that. And I've learned far more by reading through the Bible, I guess I'm on my 46th straight time, than I learned in seminary. And I'm learning new things all the time. I didn't see that before. That's the way the Holy Spirit works. So the study of Scripture is essential, and our study must engage our mind, body, emotions, and spirit, so that we don't just know more, we become new people. And that's summed up in the word transformation. We should read the Bible not so that you can know all the kings of Israel in order. That's not the goal, but so that you're being transformed. When we read Scripture, I always say, don't ever read Scripture without first asking the Holy Spirit to open your mind, heart, your entire being so that you might be transformed. Now, I will confess, there are days I don't want to be transformed. You know, aren't I doing enough for you already? Um, and I'm, I'm comfortable with my sin level right now. <laughs> so let's cut it out. Let's cut it out. Uh, so... Transformation is the goal of reading Scripture. As Chris has the purpose of Scripture, and he's quoting out what I just read to you from 2 Timothy. 
yeah, we, we're taught, we learn from Scripture. We're also rebuked and corrected. Um, I was, when I, um, my sermon last week in Amarillo, it's on Reformation Sunday, and I was talking about um, the famous slogan of the Reformation was the church reformed, always reforming according to the word of God. The point of my sermon is we need to continually bring in the entirety of our lives underneath Scripture, allowing Scripture to reform us. We never arrive. And like, oh. And uh, in our former denomination, people on the leftward side were always quoting, the church reformed, always reforming. In their mind, that meant we need to change our faith all the time according to whatever the latest cultural bandwagon is that's coming down the pike. They'd leave off that phrase, according to the word of God. I'd always remind them of that. Do you know what the motto of the city of Glasgow, Scotland is? Let Glasgow flourish. You see it all over the city. Know what it originally was from back in the 1600s? Let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of the word. (laughs) They cut that part off. You know what Harvard University's motto is? Anybody know? One word. Truth. Truth. You know what its original motto was? Truth in service to Christ and his church. That was, Harvard. that was Harvard's original motto. So the culture axes these things off. You and I need to be reformed and reforming always according to the word of God. Um, and really, um, and, and we're trained by it, Chris says. That's a coach, part of being a disciple. This is one of your coaches if you're a disciple. I love G.K. Chesterton's uh, phrase. He said, we need, as Christians, to believe in the democracy of the dead. A lot of times we think it's only the church right now. We're the smartest, most educated generation of Christians ever been, and we don't need to look at the past. No. We ought to be looking at what Scripture says, the early church fathers, the reformers. They get a vote. They ought to get a vote in what we believe. That's why we as Presbyterians are a confessional church. We in ECO, we put ourselves under four confessions. I'm trying to get them down to one, back to just Westminster, which I think is the best confession out there. But... um, that's our way of saying, this is what we as a community of faith, these are, the, these are the foul lines. This is the playing field we have agreed to play in as this kind of Christian, eco-type Christian. Um, I have some Disciples of Christ friends. Their big thing is we're not a confessional church, no creed but the Bible. Well, that sounds good, but then everybody's free with their own interpretation. You know, as a, as a person made in the image of God, you and I really are not entitled to a private interpretation of Scripture. Now, we can do that when you're having your quiet time or whatever, but that always needs to be checked out against the larger community 
of faith. You know, if you read in um, Ezekiel or something, and gosh, it looks like spaceships or something. You know, I've, I've heard people say maybe there was visitors from aliens who came back in those days. Well, do we believe that? No. Um, so a lot of these new sects, you know, Joseph Smith comes up with all this stuff, um, which evolved, devolved into Mormonism, which is just, if he had just been checked by the larger community of faith, it wouldn't have gone anywhere. Um, so we're not really entitled to our own personal interpretation. A great illustration of that, seminary classroom in one of our Presbyterian seminaries where it was on, they were studying the creeds and the professor brought in an Eastern Orthodox priest to talk about um, the Nicene Creed and one of the students raised his hand and said, uh, what does somebody do if they don't believe a lot of that creed? And the Orthodox priest wasn't even phased by the question. He said, you say the creed. The student thought he didn't understand his question. No, I mean, but what if some of those things in the creed you don't believe are true? The priest said, I just told you, you say the creed. But finally, the student came clean and said, well, I don't believe this and this and this and this in the Nicene Creed. So what am I to do? I'm here to be trained to be a pastor. And he said, you have two options. You either say the creed or you demit and not be a pastor. And he said it in a very nice way. And he said, say it with us and we will carry you in the faith until you can say it. Karl Barth, famous Reformed theologian in the 20th century, graduated from seminary. He didn't believe the virgin birth. He had imbibed of 19th century German liberal theology. Takes a church in the Alps, little church. They say the Apostles' Creed every week. I believe in the Virgin Mary, born of the Virgin Mary. He didn't believe that. What? He said that was my first pastoral dilemma. Should I cut the creed out of worship? Should I pull that phrase out of the creed when I put it in the bulletin? Should I fall silent as the, at that point? And then he came to, a, a, I think, a real wise decision. He said, could it be, possibly, that the wisdom of the greater church through the ages outweighs my personal wisdom. Here's the democracy of the dead at work. So he said, I decided to leave it in, leave that phrase in, and I would say it with them. The two definitive works in the 20th century defending the virgin birth, one is by, both are by reformed guys, uh, Gratian Machen, who's Presbyterian, and Karl Barth becomes one of the big defenders of the virgin birth. He said it until he believed it. So the Bible shapes us and carries us. We're a confessional church. Um, let's do on here. Now Chris wants us to talk about basic tools for personal Bible study. I've added some here that he doesn't have. read the Bible. That helps if you're going to do Bible study. Pray about the text. I've always said, you know, um, good theology is only done in the context of prayer. You know, we have people that study theology and they do so as scientists. 
I'm going to be totally removed, come to the thing cold, you know, and try to be uh, totally, you know. No, good theology is best done in prayer. So is reading of Scripture. And um, every time you've heard me preach, I always precede the text by saying that, Heavenly Father, open our eyes, our mind, our hearts to your word that we might clearly understand it, that we might gratefully receive it, and that we might faithfully apply it to our lives. I pray that every morning for sit down and read the Bible. I will admit some mornings that's a rote phrase, I say. Some mornings I really mean it. But without the Holy Spirit, John Calvin said, the Holy Spirit are the spectacles. When you and I, I've got presbyopia, elder eye. I can't read this text right here. It's fuzz. Put these on. There it is. Calvin says that's the function of the Holy Spirit. Calvin also said, interestingly enough, in Scripture, God lisps to us. And he goes on to say it's, it's like God baby-talking us. Uh, we can't, we're not on the level with the almighty, infinite God of the universe. So in Scripture, he gives us enough to understand what's going on, but also more than we can digest. There's always something new. But Scripture can be understood by the simplest person and the most educated person. I've told you the story of James, the custodian at Union Seminary in Richmond. Never went past third grade. He was the greatest theologian on the campus. All the professors went to him. All the students went to him when we're going through tough times. And James would, he was the chaplain of the seminary. He was not smart by world standards, third grade education, but he was wise and he knew the Bible. Uh, He was immersed in Scripture. Study important interpretations. That's another way of saying, a lot of times get a commentary uh, to help you understand something that's true. If you don't, our library here has commentaries on every book in the Bible, multiple different commentaries on each book. And, uh, or some of you have study Bibles. I, I haven't, my study Bible is the ESV study Bible. It'll give you little annotations out at the bottom what the verses mean. I tell people, though, if I'm leading a Bible, Bible study, I tell them, leave your study Bible at home. I want you to wrestle with the text and you're not, if I throw out a question, they're going down, oh, it says that it means that, no, I want you to, but there's no, in your own personal Bible study, commentaries. I also would encourage you to, to get a uh, Bible dictionary. And there's two good books out there I've mentioned these before. If you really want to seriously study the Bible, get the book Reading the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Doug Stewart. It's an easy read, but it'll help you understand how the different genre of literature in the Bible, how you shouldn't interpret history as poetry, and and they do it in a really good way. And the other book is a a little book uh, called Understanding the Bible by John Stott. And uh, 
If you want to know how dinosaurs might figure into Genesis, Stott lays it out there. And uh, he's been very helpful to me in that area. Um, and then be careful about the internet. <laughs> That's true in life, gen generally. You know? But I love the internet. You know, I, I can quickly look up a question I have instead of going to the library. That's nice. But you can't always trust what's out there, even on Christian websites. So just be careful. Again, the democracy of the dead. What has the historic church said about your question? Not what some new guy down the block has just come up with. Um, that ought to hold a lot of weight for us. Then focus on application. What is this? God, what are you saying to me? I, I, I say that every morning. I say, Lord, and again, sometimes I don't want him to say anything. What are you saying to me here, Lord? I don't hear that. <laughs> is there anybody else up there? Um, focus on application. It's the purpose of Scripture to transform us, as Paul says, reprove us, correct us, train us, coaching, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's the service that we're put here for a purpose. And this is to shape us into uh, more like the mind of Christ. Some basic rules for group Bible study. Use and read the Bible first and foremost. I, I, have you ever been to a Bible study and it's 50 minutes of fellowship and, oh, I guess we need to get into the Bible. Uh, a lot of prayer meetings are like that too. Everybody just talks about what they're going to pray about and, oh, we're out of time. I'll say a closing prayer. Uh, Bible study, a group Bible study should primarily be about getting into the Word and um, ask good open-ended questions, particularly uh, the first question. I think he's talking to the, the leader there uh, as you lead a Bible study. Make it personal. Uh, share your life, reflective questions. Let questions guide the study. We ought to be coming to Scripture with our questions. You know, a, a group Bible study... I told the congregation in Amarillo, um, you know, the whole idea behind Presbyterian pastors is you guys employ us so that we don't have to work at 7-Eleven all week and then come in here and try to preach. You, really, you, you've said when you call a pastor on staff, we want to free you to really grapple with the Word of God all week and then come and give us your best shot what you think's going on here. And that's what a good pastor does. I, I thought it might be interesting to you, maybe it won't be, how I prepare a sermon, because it really is just a, a way of doing Bible study. Um, now, I, when I was an active pastor, I preached straight through books of the Bible or sections of Scripture. That's because my homiletics professor said, you know, you're, you're ordained to preach the whole counsel of God. In fact, that was one of my ordination vows. Well, I'm, I'm not going to live long enough to preach every section of Scripture. Um, and the temptation is to look for texts that are easy or that you like 
that you think the congregation needs to hear. Uh, so I, th I took my model from John Calvin, who preached Lectio Continua, straight through books of the Bible or sections of Scripture, because that forces, forced me to have to preach texts I would never choose. And it forced you all to hear things you didn't want to hear. And there were many people throughout my career who didn't like what I preached. I'd always say, well, your arguments with the text. Was I faithful to the text? Yes, that's, that's all I want to know. And a lot of stuff I preached, I wasn't happy about either. I'm like, oh, no, i got to preach this. Oh, my goodness. Um, but I tried to be faithful to the text. I remember when I went off to Baltimore as an, after being an associate here for 10 years to be a senior pastor, Lewis Zabinden said to me, Ron, let me tell you three things that will guarantee you a successful ministry. And I was like, oh, yes. He said, first of all, work hard and let your people know you work hard. Don't get in the public every Sunday and go, oh, I was up to 3 a.m. last night visiting in the hospital. But work hard. They're watching you. They can tell. Uh, but every once in a while, let them know you're a hard worker. Okay? Secondly, love your people. Really love your people, and every once in a while, let them know that. Um, you weren't in my congregation in Baltimore and Dallas, but probably three or four times in the year, just before the benediction, I would just, before I pronounced the benediction, I just really love you all. And it was genuine. I loved people in Baltimore and Dallas here. And so don't be schmaltzy about it, but every once in a while, let them know you really love them. And he said, thirdly, Believe what you preach. Don't preach what you believe. That was his way of saying, don't just go to those texts that you already are comfortable with, but bring your faith under whatever text you know, you, is there. Uh, if you're pre preaching Lectio Continua, then your job, Ron, is you know, bring your beliefs in conformity to the text. And that's what I've done for ever since then, and Lewis gave me great advice. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know. None of us is there in terms of theology. When we get to heaven, we're going to go, I'm sorry, <laughs> but God's a God of grace. And um, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. Don't try to pretend you do. I appreciate it when somebody says, I don't know the answer to that question, Ron. I don't know. Stay primarily in one passage. Uh, some Bible studies are jumping all over the place. I know pastors that have the congregation turn in. That was a style of preaching back in the 50s. Uh, instead, my omelix professor said, you know, hone in on one point on that text and exposit the text. Stay with that text. I told you how I was going to preach and I got sidetracked, but I would try to come to the word, whatever text I had for that Sunday, cold and just spend a day or I spent two hours a day every day on the sermon and asking questions of the text. And what does that mean? Could this be also in line with blah, blah, blah? Second day, Tuesday, I did study of the Greek or Hebrew. I'm terrible at Greek and Hebrew. And it's good I was. 
my assistant in Dallas when I got there told her it wasn't any good. She went out and bought a computer program for Greek. And I said, no, no, no. I, 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 the fact that I'm pedantic in the Greek and Hebrew slows me down. You know, if you drive I-35 to Dallas at 100 miles an hour and I ask you, what did you see on the way up there? You're going to say one thing. If you drive 15 miles an hour and I ask you what you saw, you're going to see a whole lot more at 15 miles an hour than 100 miles an hour. I, I, I likened it to what I call wandering in the stacks. You know, and in the old days, you, in the library, you're in there looking for a book. But your mind, if you're working on a project, your mind is working while you're doing that pedantic wandering in the stacks. That was Greek and Hebrew to me. Sometimes I'd get a great insight in the language. Most of the time, probably not. But it was an important step that enabled me to see things in the text because I was going so slow that I would have missed if I just was proficient in the language. Wednesday, I combed everywhere I could for looking for illustration. How do I make, what are some stories out there I could when you're a young pastor, you buy books of sermon illustrations. But probably at, I don't know, 15 years into preaching Sunday by Sunday, you get rid of those, and I see illustrations everywhere. Everywhere. One of the nice things about being retired is I can watch a movie now without trying to figure out what text in the Bible is that going to be a great illustration for. And same with books and everything. So I can actually enjoy yeah, instead of preparing for the sermon. And then Thursday, I took my day off, but I was always mulling the text, honing in on that one text. And a lot of stuff came to me on just as I was grocery shopping and cutting the grass and whatever else I was doing. Friday, I'd sit down Friday morning in fear and trepidation and write the sermon, trying to hone it down to one primary thing. That's hardest thing in the world to do because I had about eight things vying for so I'd pray Holy Spirit <laughs> bring this together and uh, I had this great homilex professor at Union Seminary Welford Hobby and he said, uh, he said a number of great things about dealing with the Bible he says you know in, when you preach uh, it's probably about 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration the, the amount of time Gentlemen, you put this seat of your pants, apply it to a chair. Uh, the Holy Spirit can use that. Don't depend on the Holy Spirit to do it for you. And at the same time, though, he said, it really is all about the Holy Spirit. He said, some weeks there's going to be a scripture text, and it's just like, ah, uh, and you're going through the week, and it's not giving you anything. It's not coming together. And you're like, give me something. Friday rolls around. I had many of those Fridays. I'm like, oh, no, no. I got to write a sermon. I can't just walk in the pulpit and go, well, this wasn't a good week. Um, and I'd write the sermon. It was awful. I mean, it was awful. And Welford used to say, that's why Paul wrote to Timothy, be ready to preach the word in season and out of season. Going to be those weeks when it flies off the, out of the scripture onto your page. You can't wait to get in the pulpit and preach it. It should be on the Protestant hour on the radio. Um, he said, be careful. There are going to be those weeks where it won't come. The sermon's a dog. You know it's a dog. And you're embarrassed to even get in the pulpit and preach it. And he said, those are the sermons you're going to get the personal handwritten notes from people who said, that changed my life. He said, that's the Holy Spirit work. So you just preach, preach, preach in season, out of season. 
And then the ball is in the Holy Spirit's court. That's the way it is with Bible study personally or in a group. Um, I remember hearing Mr. Rogers. Remember him? He was an ordained Presbyterian pastor. I heard him tell a story at a, at a conference one time. He said he and his wife were on vacation. They went to a Presbyterian church. He said the pastor got up and preached. The guy couldn't preach worth a darn. The, the, his exegesis of the text was horrible. His delivery was horrible. And he, he said, I sat there just slicing the guy to pieces in my mind as he's preaching. And he finally ended, and I was like, Hallelujah. And I turned to my wife to say, wasn't that the worst thing you've ever heard? And I did, and there were tears coming down <laughs> her eyes, her cheeks. And he said, I learned that. That's no excuse for bad preaching, but it's to say the Holy Spirit can use anything to impact lives, as long as it's somehow linked to the Word. It, the Bible says, God says through Scripture, my Word will not return Void. Um, use various methods, including imagination. Uh, God's given us an imagination. We're not to, you know, I'm, I'm more of a, a left brain guy. I'm a scientist, and I've had to learn to exercise my right brain more and be more imaginative than just, again, focus on meaning and personal application. It's all about transformation. Chris's final word, more importantly, words alone will not change people in our society. One of the principal elements of postmodernism is a rejection of truth claims. The current culture says there is no such thing as absolute truth. You know how you can undercut them right there? Say, are you absolutely sure? <laughs> yes. Oh, then there is absolute truth. Well, uh, no absolute truth. Everybody, I have my truth, you have your truth, or it's just truths out there. That's the current culture we live in. I was talking to Ellen before the service, and I don't know how they figure this stuff out, but those that study this stuff say up until 2004, the culture uh, welcomed the church. The church pretty much ran on kind of parallel track morality-wise, with the culture, for the most part. Something happened in 2004 where the culture shifted to, well, we'll tolerate the church. We don't really like the church anymore, but, but you know, they have a right to be in the neighborhood as long as they don't park their cars all over and block my driveway, which we heard about. We, you know, Highland Park Press, we had not one off-street parking place. I w once said to a church consultant, would it be possible to have a 5,500-member church with no off-street parking. He said, no, impossible. I said, we do. They now have an underground parking garage since I left. But uh, anyway, uh, what was I saying? <laughs> oh, in 2004, they said they tolerate the church. Yeah, they have a right to be here, but we don't really like it. 2014, they say the culture turned on the church. I was telling Ellen, it's, they don't like, first of all, they think we're crazy. I mean, that we talk to an imaginary little man upstairs and that we read some old book and thinks this has anything to do with real life. And, and, but it's gone worse than that. Now we're seen as the enemy. 
what Paul says here, the way you and I are to live as disciples, is a threat to the culture. And so a lot of them are calling for the elimination of, they don't say it outright like they're saying kill all the Jews, but they want the church done away with, and they see us as dangerous. Dangerous. Barbara, you look like you want to say something. Is that, that people, it, it, there has to be something. They wouldn't be this angry if it weren't true. Yeah, yeah. That's the problem, you know. The truth is there. When I was a freshman in college, I was on a prodigal journey away from Christ. I was doing it all. And I hated it. There was a guy who was a Christian kid in my class. He didn't shove anything down anybody, he, but he had that aura of Christ. And it was a judgment against me. I saw how authentic his life was, and I hated it. I hated him. And um, so Paul talks about it. We have the aroma of Christ, but it's also a stench to those who are in rebellion against Christ. So, you know, persecution, Jesus says, if you do what the Word says, you're going to be persecuted. Look what happened to me. You think you're going to get off any better? I don't want to be persecuted. But I was telling Ellen, if you study church history, wherever the church is persecuted, the church grows. So if you can get your mind, and I have a hard time doing this, get your mind off yourself. If your primary goal is the growth of the kingdom of God, it's almost like, bring it on. And um, Skip Ryan was my covenant group. He was a pastor at Park City's Prez in Dallas. And he went to China one time, and he came back, and we met every Monday, Jim Dennison and he and I, and he said, I met with these underground Chinese pastors. I think there were seven of them. They'd all been beaten. They'd all been thrown in prison. At various times, they were uh, threatened with the death sentence, and Skip said to them, when I get back to Dallas, I'm going to have my congregation praying that this persecution against you stops, and they all said, no, 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 no. The persecution is what's spreading the gospel. The persecution is what's honing our faith, setting us on fire for Christ. I was like, whoa. I would have said, yeah, please. Um, so I'm, I'm dealing with that. That's one of the cutting edges of my own mind. And I've said this in here before. Every day I pray, Lord God, I make a decision, uh, November 5th, 2023, to die for you if that time ever comes. I make the decision today. I won't have to make it in the heat of the moment. That could happen, uh, the way things are going out there. Uh, Nazi Germany was the most civilized culture in the world in the early 20th century, and look what happened. Um, let me end by just saying this whole postmodern thing, uh, they say there's no such thing anymore as a meta-narrative. Meta-narrative means one unifying story that makes sense out of everything else. They said that's, there is none. There's only stories, and you have your story, and I have mine, and blah, blah, blah. Um, Christians, we say, no, 
there is a meta-narrative. It's the one story of the Bible. This is the lens through which we view all of life. And um, again, another G.K. Chesterton quote that I find very literally illuminating. He said, you know, we believe the sun exists not because we can see the sun. You can't see the sun. If you looked at the sun, your retinas would be burned out in a millisecond. He says, we believe the sun exists not because we can see the sun, but because we can see everything else. All the light in the world. And I can't make sense out of a lot of what goes on in life until I put on the spectacles, until I begin to look at life through the lens of the cross, uh, especially when it comes to pain and suffering and all that stuff. Uh, there's a great astrophysicist, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's an African-American guy, really articulate. I listen to his podcast. Occasionally somebody asks him, do you believe in God? And he says, well, no, I'm a scientist. And I, you know, he, 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 he latches onto the, the classic thing, you know, a God should be all good and all powerful. But if God's all good, then why is there cancer and babies dying? And uh, so he's either not all powerful, he can't do anything about it, or he's not all good. And so I can't rectify that. So I don't believe there is a God. That question is not new. Uh, the Bible begins with that question. Remember, Job's the oldest book in the Bible. And the front door to the faith is Job being going righteous man, unfairness. His children are killed. Everything's taken away from him. And I think that's God's way of saying, this is the front door of faith. You've got to deal with this now, not later down the line. And trust me. Trust me. I really can't trust God unless I look at the cross. I know that, all, that whatever injustice has happened in this world, in my own personal life, Christ experienced infinite more injustice and pain and suffering. So God is not, he doesn't exempt himself from it. Now, I don't understand. It's, it's almost like, well, um, my mentor in seminary, Dr. John Leith, used to look at us and say, you'll never be a good pastor until you... Uh, are crushed in the crucible of life. And I and and and, and you should say and, and look into the abyss. I remember sitting there going, I don't want to be a good pastor. I'll just I like to just skim it on the surface. Uh, but he was he's, he's right. And uh, Job looks into the abyss, but he doesn't take his wife's advice, curse God and die. It says he worships and he stays with God even with the unanswerable questions. And uh, I think C.S. Lewis hits a nail on the head. He says, we're going to spend the first 10,000 years in eternity going, now I understand. I understand. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Uh, give us a hunger and thirst to get into it individually, Bible studies. Uh, we pray that the word would be faithfully read and preached in all our services this morning, and the sacrament right, rightly dis, uh, administered, and that 
we would pray from the depths of our hearts in worship today, connecting with you, equip, being equipped by your Holy Spirit to then go from this place and to be servants to hupotasis, our husbands and wives, our children, our grandchildren, our friends, our employees. May that be our posture as we go through life. And we may it be to the glory of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name.